Welcome to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. I'm Tom Keen. Daily, we bring you insight from the best in economics, finance, investment, and international relations. Find Bloomberg Surveillance on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Bloomberg.com, and of course, on the Bloomberg. For all of us in economics, it's a fun, fun day out in Jackson Hole with all of these interviews coming up from Mester Kaplan from Bostic of Atlanta. And here now is our Michael McKee with the Federal Reserve Bank of St. Louis Fed president. Good morning and thank you very much. We'd like to welcome everybody listening to us on Bloomberg Radio and watching us on Bloomberg Television around the world. And we'd like to welcome Jim Bullard. And thank you for getting up so early to join us. Sure, thanks for having me. It's 40 degrees. Yeah, Yeah, it's 40 (laughs) degrees. You're from Minnesota, so you have to pretend you like it. And it's a normal thing. Look, a lot of Wall Street focus today on the chairman's speech. Uh, The minutes suggested that the Fed is locked in for September. So, even if you disagree with that rate path, is there any reason to think that he's going to say anything market moving today? I'm sure the chair will be very careful. Uh, I've not seen the speech, uh, but he'll he'll do a good job. He always does. He's always very, uh, very serious. You don't get the impression there's any kind of change afoot for the open market committee and the rate path that they're on. Well, the markets are putting a high probability on September, and I mean, you can poll the other uh, members of the committee as well as I can, and uh, there certainly seems to be sentiment to go in that direction. Would you expect the forward guidance to drop out of the statement in September, the idea that the rates are accommodative and will stay that way? Uh, That's an interesting issue, and I think we'll have to wrestle with that one. Uh, I'm so from from my point of view, I'd you know rather not be calling rates accommodative right now. I think the whole structure of rates is lower, and therefore I think we're at neutral or very close to neutral right now. Very interesting story out today on uh, Bloomberg News. Twenty years ago, 1998, unemployment very low, inflation sticky and relatively low. James Stock, you know, the famous yep. economist, uh, did a paper uh, that suggested that in those situations where you don't really know why something is happening, it is better for the Fed to be aggressive than to uh, take a step back because you don't know when inflation might show up. Now, you're in the step back camp. Uh, Why is James Stock wrong and Jim Bullard right? Yeah, that's an older paper. And there was a literature about that kind of went around in circles on this uh, about whether you should be more aggressive or less aggressive when you're uncertain about uh, about key key things like the slope of the Phillips curve. there are arguments on the other side. So that was just one paper in a, in a kind of sea of papers on that. Um, I would say it makes more sense probably to be a gradualist on that. Well, why? In, in the current environment, yeah, I would well, say. Why, why do you say that? You know, what, uh, what you'd like to do is just take on board the idea that inflation has been very low. It's been very stable. It really has been quite sluggish. And it just doesn't seem like you have to do too much. But if you had to, you could move pretty fast if you needed to. So, so I just don't see uh, the argument for being preemptive in this situation in a world where the Phillips curve really hasn't uh, been a factor in the last 20 years. Well, the Fed in 1998 essentially did not take James Stuck. Just, just to show you how flat we're talking about now, this is a ratio of 10 to 1. So you need 100 basis points of gap between unemployment and some natural rate of unemployment to get just 10 basis points on the inflation rate. And man, that's that's really, really, <laughs> so that's you, almost nothing. Your bet you is know. 
the next two years, we don't see inflation. I don't see it. And more importantly, I don't think markets see it. If you look at tips-based measures of inflation expectations, they're taking all this into account. They've taken into account uh, uh, fiscal policy, the rapid growth in the economy, low unemployment rate. They still don't see that much inflation, especially if you translate from a CPI basis to a PCE basis. So they're really saying we probably won't hit our inflation target over the next five years, next 10 years, or the five or, I'm sorry, the next 10 years. Well, in 1998, the, the Fed did not take uh, James Stock's advice. It kept <laughs> rates low for long, and everybody, uh, not everybody, but a lot of people suggest that maybe that was one of the proximate causes of the 2008 financial crisis, that rates were too low for too long okay. and excesses yeah. built well, up. You know, okay, so financial stability is, a, is an issue. Uh, the, the 98, though, would have been the currency crisis and uh, started in Thailand and then spread uh, in Asia ultimately not affecting the U.S. economy uh, was a lesson from that uh, because it drove U.S. rates lower and that actually helped the boom in the U.S. So um, later you got, uh, of course, the dot-com bubble did come to an end uh, later. Yield curve was inverted in 2000 and Fed went ahead and, and uh, raised rates in the face of an inverted yield curve and you could argue that uh, that was a mistake at the time. Well, you and other members of the Open Market Committee have said we would not intentionally uh, invert the yield curve, but are you smart enough? Do you have enough insight into the markets to know whether you would do that? Uh, I, here's what I think on this issue. I was around in 2000. We met, we did it, played it wrong. I was around in 2006. Again, the yield curve was inverted. We played it wrong. This time, I want to take this signal seriously, even though when you look at macroeconomic models, it doesn't really fit into the models the way we'd like. But I think you have to take it seriously as a signal. And what I think about this is there is no reason to challenge the yield curve at this time. There's no reason. In other circumstances, if inflation was higher and heading higher, then I might say, well, we're taking some recession risk, but I'm willing to trade that off because it looks like inflation is getting out of control. We're not in that situation today. Inflation is low. It's stable. It's barely up to target, just barely getting to target today. So we don't need to challenge. We don't need to be preemptive on the yield curve. Uh, one of the other arguments against moving, people say, is the impact that you have on emerging markets and the spillover effect that could have on the U.S. economy. I know your mandate is the U.S. economy, yeah. but how much of a risk do you think that is? Well, I mean, we've been going very slow with the rate increases, well telegraphed. Uh, I think these foreign economies have had uh, ample opportunity and ample understanding of what was going on in the U.S., you do have some countries that have special situations, usually special political situations of one kind or another. They borrowed in foreign currency. That's often an issue. Not enough reserves. That's often an issue. So um, I would take those as special cases, the countries that are having trouble, um, but I'll keep an eye on it. Uh, also on the list of things that uh, Fed officials have been concerned about, the decline in home sales, and not just the decline in home sales, but uh, median prices have been falling. Is the, is the Fed killing the housing market by raising rates? Uh, well, uh, housing is one of the most interest-sensitive sectors, so you would think it would uh, have some impact there. Um, if you talk to real estate people, then they say, well, it's, limited in, it's because of the limited inventories and uh, prices... Uh, you're saying median prices went down, but uh, some of the year-over-year -year figures are still positive. So, um, and they have risen quite a bit. They've been rising. The housing prices up until now, up until mm -hmm. recently, have been rising at a 
fairly good clip. Finally on the list, tariffs. Uh, most economists say there will be some effect, but it doesn't show up in the data. So I'm wondering what companies in your district, CEOs, are telling you about the impact of tariffs so far and what impact that might be having on their investment decisions. Yeah, I certainly get an earful about uh, tariffs from many different angles. There's a lot of concern on Main Street about how these uh, tariff wars will affect them and their products. Soybeans, for instance, is a major product out of the 8th District that's, uh, that's exported. Um, I hope we can get to some resolution. I hope that the strategy works, that this is a negotiating tactic, but that ultimately it leads to freer trade and better trade arrangements with our trading partners. Well, there's been uncertainty about tariffs. There was uncertainty about the impact of the tax reform law. And last time we talked, you suggested that that was leading companies to hold off on investment decisions because they weren't sure what the climate was going to be. Has that changed or are companies still on hold? They're, they are concerned about the tariff uh, issue because they, they feel like, well, if I, if I put a plant in uh, country X and then there are a bunch of, you know, the tariffs go way up, then I'm going to have to move the plant to some other country. And so they want to know what the rules are before they invest. That's a classic uh, element of uh, investing on a grand scale, and uh, they do want certainty uh, before they do that. One of the I don't know if they'll ever get it, but they want it. <laughs> they want more certainty than you can provide. Yeah. One of the topics here as we talk about changing market structure uh, uh, is uh, the decline in business dynamism in the United States. Uh, do you have a good handle on why that is and, and, and how is it uh, in the 8th District? You know, I have, a, I have an idea about this and I'm going to test it out and pitch it out here to these few, uh, people here at this conference. But the I think the core idea is that in the 1980s, if you look at the data since the 1980s, uh, there are more people working for big companies today than there were. It used to be like, kind of like 60%, now it's like 80% of all employees are working for so-called big companies, depending on how you define that. So if you think about what happened since the 80s, it was all about rolling up industries. Uh, hardware industry used to be very uh, uh, dispersed. Now you've got Lowe's and Home Depot. Uh, coffee used to have a coffee shop on every street corner. They're independently owned. Now you've got Starbucks. That theme has rolled through the U.S. corporate sector since the 1980s, and I think that that is what has driven this idea that you know more people are working for bigger companies. The worry about that is bigger companies are thought to not innovate as much, and so that might hurt our economy long term. Not enough small firms. And, uh, you know, they tend to be, you know, more sluggish and not, not react enough to market events uh, compared to smaller firms. So that would be the concern. Jim Bullard, president of the St. Louis Fed, thanks for joining us on, right. on this cold morning. We'll let you get warm in just a second. <laughs> okay. Here, and we'll send it back to you. Uh, Michael McKee, thank you so much. And Michael McKee in front of the split rail fence at Jackson Hole. Uh, a beautiful, beautiful morning as the fog uh, is burned off. Here he is with the president of the Cleveland Fed. Here he is. And thank you very much. And we welcome President Mester to Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Thank you for coming out well, in the thanks. cold here. If you're not nervous. You're shivering because it is really it's, cold out here it's today. It's cold out here today. Uh, the fundamental question that they just asked was, uh, Jay Powell today, uh, the minutes sort of suggest we're locked in for September for a, a, a rate move. So uh, does Chairman Powell 
need to say anything today or can the bond traders who are not in the Hamptons uh, you know, leave by noon? Well, look, the case for raising interest rates, I think, is pretty compelling. We have an economy that's growing above trend. We have low unemployment and we have inflation at, at basically our goal of 2%. So we've been trying to engineer, um, calibrate our policy path to the economy. And so this gradual increase in rates seems to be a com very compelling case right now, given that we are accommodative still on monetary policy. Well, you think the market gets that? Uh, the chairman doesn't need to steer us in any direction? Well, you know, the chairman will give his speech today, and I think he's going to be talking about um, some long-run issues as well as perhaps short-run issues, and I'm looking forward to hearing his speech as well. Uh, you think in September uh, you go ahead and drop the accommodative statement from uh, fr from your statement, the accommodative sentence, end forward guidance? So you know um, in the minutes mentioned that, you know, we're thinking about how we want to, you know, change the statement. Um, we, we look at the statement every time to make sure that we're being um, transparent about our views on policy and, and sort of give an indication of where policy is going. Now, we're in a, in a situation now where, you know, we are data dependent, as we've been, um, and we want to be um, as transparent as we can where we think policy is going, but we also want people to understand that we don't lock ourselves into something. We want to react to how the data comes in and where the economy is going. So again, we want our, our, our statements to be transparent in that sense so that people aren't misled. Well, I wonder if, if the markets completely get the message. And the reason I ask that is the, is the yield curve being so flat and a lot of people predicting it's going to invert. You're about 100 basis points below where the median uh, terminal rate would be uh, based on your latest forecast. So if you're going to keep raising rates to that point and the yield curve is this flat, does that suggest that markets aren't getting your message or that they fundamentally disagree with your assessment of the economy? Well, I think the yield curve is certainly something we look at, the slope of the yield curve. I think there's reasons to think that it may not be signaling the same as it has in the past. As you know, um, an inverted yield curve is usually correlated with um, an economy going into recession. But there's reason to, to un, to, to that the long end is um, depressed now for other reasons. In particular, there's demand for safe assets, so you know, quality, flight to quality into the U.S. Treasury market and also um, QE around the world. You know, we've, a lot of central banks have used the long end. In the U.S. we did. We bought long-term assets and that put downward pressure on the long end. Of the, so the, the signal that you take from the yield curve now is different in the, than it has been in the past. You mentioned QE. At the last Fed meeting, you had a staff presentation on monetary policy tools, and the conclusion of the staff was, we're going to get to the zero lower bound again sometime in the next decade, and they aren't really sure how much QE or forward guidance is going to help get off zero. Does that worry you? Well, I think QE was successful in, in terms of putting lower um, accommodation into the economy. It is one of the tools that we have. Um, forward guidance is another tool that we have. And I think this discussion was an important one to have so that we are prepared. There's reason to believe that longer term interest rates are going to be lower um, in the future for demographic reasons because of demand for safe assets. And so it's very good for the Fed to have these discussions to be prepared. But we do have tools that we can use at the lower bound. Uh, do you have enough confidence in them that they work, or do you need to find another arrow for the quiver? Well, I think we're always, you know, looking at our monetary policy framework. Um, that's something else that we're going to have a discussion about in the future, and that's part of this 
you know, prudent planning for the future. Uh, the Fed had maybe three main concerns, not concerns in the sense that they were imminent problems for the economy, but things that you're watching. Uh, emerging markets, a big one. And I wonder what, how you approach this, what, what your feel is, uh, feeling is about the Fed's responsibility for what happens in emerging markets, given the dollar's role as the reserve currency and the outsized effect that you have on other people. Right. So Congress has given us our mandate, and of course it's, it's centered on the domestic economy, but we are in a global economy. So the feedback effects of other markets, other countries onto the U.S. economy, economy is something that we must take into account when we're doing U.S. monetary policy. So again, you know, at this point, um, we don't anticipate that there will be big feedbacks, but we've seen in the past that financial markets can uh, propagate uh, shocks from one economy to another. And so it's certainly something that we're going to be monitoring. Another thing, obviously, on everybody's list, tariffs. Um, Alan Blinder said the other day, 100% of economists agree that tariffs will have an impact on the economy. <laughs> Yet, we don't see it in the data. So how worried are you about that? Well, it's certainly a risk. Um, if you look at just uh, the tariffs that have been announced in terms of the macroeconomic effect, it's not that large, but there's uncertainty around how that will play out. And that, in, its, in and of itself, can affect firms. In our district, we've been monitoring because, of course, the fourth district is, um, you know, has a trade uh, with Canada as being an important part of the economy and also the auto industry. And so we're, we are very much um, looking at firms and talking to firms. And firms have said that they are taking into account tariffs, but so far they haven't reacted strongly to them. They haven't uh, taken off investment that they had planned, but they are considering it. And so that's something that we want to monitor very carefully. Well, you are sort of the, the center of the tariffs for the United States economy, according to the president. So uh, do you see any positive effects? Um, I think that most economists, and myself included, think that free trade actually benefits um, countries. If you actually look at the history, that you want to have free and open and fair trade. And so I, I would be in that camp. Well, if you, uh, if you go forward with additional tariffs, uh, does it have a major effect on the economy or, uh, or your district? Or is it uh, small enough given the size of the U.S. economy, that it doesn't really matter all that much? I think it depends on how it plays out. If we get into a trade war where we have one country retaliating against another, that in and of itself can affect the U.S. economy through the direct roof of the tariffs themselves, but also through the uncertainty that it causes. Do you anticipate that uh, the tariffs will add to any of the inflation pressures that you, Loretta Mester, worry about? So. You know, this is a, a consideration. If it's a one-time tariff and it's a one-time increase in prices, then we'll look through that. I think that's not an inflationary. But if you have these retaliatory tariffs that come on over time and continue, then it's something that we have to take into account in terms of our inflation readings. All right, speaking of inflation, uh, do you think you understand inflation dynamics these days? I mean, you're worried that uh, the lack of slack in the economy is going to push up prices, but it's not really happening. So I think it's something we watch. Um, you know, we know for a number of years that the so-called Phillips curve um, has not been um, very steep. And so it's something that we have to understand. I mean, my own view of inflation is that inflation expectations are very important determinant of dynamics. We have seen inflation move up to our 2% goal. I expect by the end of the year that I'll be able to conclude that it's sustainably at 2%. I mean, we're going to see monthly variations in the, in the data as we always do. But I think it's been moving up, and I think that's something that as we 
go forward and into the next year, we're going to have to be monitoring very carefully where we are relative to our goals. But that's typical monetary policy making. Well, the shift, uh, the, the argument has shifted basically from whether inflation is rising and will it hit your goal to how far above your goal do you let it go? Uh, what would you be comfortable with? So. We didn't overreact when inflation was below our goal. I don't think it's right for us to overreact when inflation goes a bit above our goal. We're always aiming to keep inflation about at our 2% goal. Um, and so I'm comfortable with inflation moving a little bit above 2%. But again, it's got to be in the medium run forecast coming back down to 2%. Well, I mean, these guys out there on the trading desks are all wondering, what does she mean a little bit? I mean, 2.5% for how long? Uh, how it do really you depends on that? the forecast, right? I mean, I wouldn't be comfortable if I saw a forecast that had, you know, inflation moving up and continuing to move up above 2%. If I saw it move up temporarily, but my forecast and most economists' forecasts were it to come back down to 2% over that media run forecast time horizon over which policy monetary policy can affect the economy, then I'd be comfortable. And the other question everybody wants to know is if inflation is moving up, when do I get a raise? Because right now, consumer price inflation is running above average hourly earnings. Right. So if you look at the ECI data, which is one of the indicators of wage um, inflation, you have seen it accelerate um, from where it was earlier in the expansion, which is a good thing. Um, and if you look at the disaggregated, you see it's the lower end um, of wages that are moving up. So I think that's a very good thing. I think a lot of what's going on in the wage um, picture has to do with low productivity growth. So investment being up can increase productivity growth. I think that's a good thing. I think the other aspect, of course, is and inflation has been low over for most of the, of the expansion, and that also explains the low levels of wage growth. Loretta Mester, thank you very much for joining us thank today. Thank you. And th we'll let you go get warm, <laughs> and we'll send it back to you. A careful, careful interview with the president of the Cleveland Fed, Loretta Mester, with her Michael McKee. This will be an important interview, always interesting with a member of the Dallas Fed. And uh, for Robert Kaplan, it is about confidence in the American economy. It is about the business process. It is about business. And from that confidence, the leadership that leads to investment and then on uh, to jobs. We do this with green on the screen, the Dow up 65, the VIX under 12, 11.99. Uh, I'm watching yields here higher a little bit this morning, but really all attention paid to this series of Fed interviews leading to the Powell speech. Right now, our Michael McKee in Jackson Hole with Robert Kaplan of the Dallas Fed. Thank you very much. We welcome Dallas Fed President Robert Kaplan to Bloomberg Television and Radio Worldwide. Thank you for joining us. Thanks, Mike. You're, you're appropriately dressed. You're not as yeah, cold as some of our other guests I feel this good. morning. <laughs> We're about uh, 20 minutes away from the main event of the day for Wall Street, uh, the chairman's speech. Yeah. Uh, the minutes suggest we're locked in for a rate increase in September, probably in December as well. Do you expect the chairman to give us any guidance uh, to the contrary? I'm not going to comment on what the chairman's going to say. Uh, I'll, I'll, I'll let his speech stand on its own. I've, uh, I've said I, I think we ought to be moving toward neutral, uh, which means three or four increases over the next nine to 12 months. And I think uh, at this point, moving in September and December is consistent with that path. So that, that would be my own view. But I think uh, everyone around the table 
uh, should express their views independently, including the chair, <laughs> and I know he will. Well, one of the arguments around the table is that inflation is roughly at your target, yeah. but it's not moving up very fast. I mean, you've been advocating continuing with the path that you're on, yeah. uh, but why do you need to do that if inflation's not breaking up? So uh, our measure at the Dallas Fed is the trim mean, which is a core inflation measure. Uh, X's out extreme moves to the upside and downside. And we see that getting to 2% uh, by the end of this year and even strengthening beyond there. And here's, here's what's going on. There's two conflicting factors. One is the cyclical factors. Got a very tight labor market. We have higher input costs. Some of it's due to tariffs, maybe transitory factors. But there's no question the cyclical factors are pushing prices uh, upward uh, and, and having inflation. There are structural factors going the other way, globalization, automation, you know, people being replaced by technology. And so my own view is inflation is going to keep moving up because the cyclical factors are very strong. I don't think it's going to run away from us, but I think what the balance we're trying to tread at the, at the Fed and what I'm trying to tread is you want to move gradually. You don't want to move so slowly that inflation uh, and these cyclical forces get ahead of themselves and get ahead of us and we have to play catch up in which case we'd have to raise rates more quickly. And I think that typically leads to bad outcomes, in particular a recession. So what we're trying to do is raise gradually, and, and, and that's the reason why I've been advocating let's keep moving. The other reason I'm advocating let's keep moving, we're meeting our dual mandate objectives. We're meeting our full employment objective. As you said, inflation's around 2%. Uh, in that context, we, should, we, shouldn't be we don't need to be accommodative. We should be moving to a neutral stance. And neutral would mean, uh, for me, three or four increases to get to somewhere in the neighborhood, uh, plus or minus of two and a half to two and three quarters percent, maybe a little bit more. And that's the primary reason why I've been advocating we should keep gradually uh, raising the Fed funds rate. Well, you're the Fed's man in the oil patch. And uh, you just wrote this week that oil prices are going to go up. Well, here's what, here's what I'm saying. I'm saying they're vulnerable to an upside uh, price spike. Here's why. We were in a global oversupply situation over the last few years. We're now, I, we think, in, a, in global equilibrium. Supply basically equal to demand. But because global demand keeps growing, um, and uh, there also there's the risk of uh, supply outages from Iran, Venezuela, uh, we think U.S. production is going to need to keep growing, and shale in particular, but there are limits to how fast shale can grow. So what we've cautioned is in the next three years, three to five, we're likely to move into a global undersupply situation. So while we're in this period, we're a little more vulnerable than we have been to uh, you know, less oil on the market from Iran because of sanctions or less oil on the market from Venezuela, and we're just cautioning I think we're a little more vulnerable to an upside price shock in oil uh, uh, in this period, and we just have to be sensitive to that. Does that translate into inflation concerns that would change the rate path? I think oil and energy is obviously one part of uh, inflation, but I think it leads, it leads into a broad narrative. Most CEOs I talk to, and I talk to about 30 a month, and we do broad surveys, most companies I talk to are saying input costs are going up. Energy is part of it. Uh, steel, aluminum. Um, some of that's due to these, to, due to tariffs. I think input costs generally are going up, so uh, um, I think we just have to be aware of that. Now, uh, this is why there's one impact of the tariffs that affects oil that people are concerned about. 
one of the reasons production isn't growing faster in, say, the Permian Basin in Texan, Texas is lack of infrastructure, particularly pipelines. That takes steel. Uh, and these tariffs, a lot of people in the industry are concerned, are going to slow building of those pipelines or at least make it more expensive. And so it, it, all these factors uh, fit in with one another, and, and it's part of the broad dashboard that I'm watching. Well, let's talk about tariffs and those CEOs. Uh, we don't see tariff impacts in the data yet. So are the CEOs changing behavior at all because of what they think might happen? If you, if you look economy-wide, we don't see much impact, I agree. If you look at individual industries, you're seeing, you're seeing impact. And what I hear from CEOs I'm talking to is, at a minimum, the tariffs are having somewhat of a chilling impact on their capital spending plans, meaning they're just saying, let's just wait a little bit and see how this unfolds. And in certain industries, it's raising input costs. And for the first time in a long time, they're trying to pass on price increases. I don't see it yet, as you said, in overall GDP. And I think if it's contained here, I'm optimistic that it won't have a material effect on GDP. But what we're watching for and what companies are watching for is this spread further, is it more prolonged, does it get wider? I'm, I'm, I'm hopeful that it, it, that won't happen. And if it does, we'll have to reassess the impact on the overall economy. Based on what you said about three or four more rate increases, you're about 100 basis points below what you think uh, neutral might be. Yet the yield curve is extraordinarily flat right now. Uh, markets fretting about inversion. Yeah. Uh, does that suggest maybe a failure to communicate on the Fed's part in the sense that investors don't understand your view of the economy or no. they don't believe your forecasts? No, I actually think the, 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 the uh, Treasury market's reading what we're saying pretty accurately. Here's the way I read the Treasury market. The short end, the one and two year Treasuries, are, are uh, fully reflective, I think, of the, of the rhetoric from the Fed, how many times we plan to uh, raise rates. Uh, and I think that's, um, that's substantially reflected in the short end of the curve. The long end of the curve isn't controlled by the Fed. The long end of the curve is dictated by economic conditions and GDP growth. What the long end of the curve is saying is yes, there's a lot of global liquidity, which may be putting some downward pressure. In other words, there's lots of pension funds and central banks that are buying the 10-year and the 30-year. But I think what the long end of the curve is also saying is that medium-term growth is going to be weaker than what it looks today. It's going to be more sluggish. So I, I actually t think that the Treasury curve is very consistent with what we've been saying and our economic outlook and pretty consistent with what the Fed's been saying about the path of rates. Well, if growth is going to slow and inflation uh, isn't going to get out of control, what do you worry about in terms of the economy? What, in your mind, could derail December or 2019 rate hikes? Well, in the short run, uh, the things I'm looking at, uh, we'll have to see if tariffs become more widespread. But related to that, I'm looking for uh, uh, risk outside the United States. So obviously there are countries like Turkey and Argentina that are very dependent on dollar-denominated debt and they're having a turmoil. So far that hasn't led to contagion. I think it's so far contained, but I'm watching that. I think the reason watch it so closely is if you had uh, global financial instability, that could spill over back in the United States and affect financial conditions here. So I'm watching for that. Setting that aside, I'm more worried about, about the medium-term outlook than what happens in the next six to 12 months. I think the, sh the short-term outlook for the U.S. economy is very strong, as you and I have discussed, 
But I'm more worried about what happens in 2020 and 21, which is being driven more, in my opinion, by the fact that fiscal stimulus will have faded, but we'll be left with an aging population, slowing workforce growth, uh, and sluggish productivity, I think mainly due to uh, lagging education and skill levels in the United States. We can do something about those things, but that's still my biggest concern. And then the third concern, which I've mentioned before, is we're getting a tailwind from fiscal stimulus right now and a lot of government debt. That tailwind can turn into a headwind if we decide in the next few years we've got to moderate debt growth in the United States. So those are the three things I'm most worried about, but that isn't necessarily a six-month worry. That's a medium-term worry. Well, let me quickly ask you this. Uh, the Fed's uh, most recent meeting, staff presented uh, an analysis of policy going forward and suggested you're going to be at zero, you're going to have to cut rates to zero again sometime within the next decade, and that maybe QE and forward guidance don't work as well as they did the last time to get us out of that. Does that concern you? Uh, what else do you do? So what that emphasizes for me is our tools are in the lingo asymmetrical it's a lot easier to tighten than to ease. So that affects my thinking now, meaning I mentioned growth is strong now, but I think it's gonna wane somewhat in 19, maybe two and a half percent, and then trending down to 2% or one and three quarters to 2%. Uh, makes me conscious that it's very important that we move gradually and patiently because if we overdo it uh, and we have to play catch up and the economy is in a downturn. We don't have much capacity for fiscal stimulus. And as you just said, our tools, uh, we don't have a lot of tools in the, as many as we've had in the past in the next recession. So it tells me uh, that we ought to be moving gradually and patiently now. And also I remind myself, monetary policy acts with a lag. So we may not see the effect of the rate increases now for another six to 12 months. And it's a little bit masked by all this fiscal stimulus. I think it's very important for us to keep that in mind. And so again, all that leads me to let's gradually move to neutral. And then when we get there, let's assess where we are and figure out what, if any, action should be taken. But I think it's very important uh, that we, we move in a gradual, patient way. All right, Robert Kaplan, thank you very much for joining us, President Thanks, of the Dallas Fed. We'll send it back to you. Michael McKee in Jackson Hole. With us, former governor of the Federal Reserve System, Frederick Mishkin, Rick Mishkin of Columbia University. Do we need to hear a statement, Rick, today on Fed independence? Is this a good point for Chairman Powell to slip in one or two sentences to stake out Fed territory? I don't know if it's if it's necessary right now. Uh, certainly, uh, Federal Reserve independence is extremely important, uh, and uh, we have a, a lot of hi both history and also uh, research that indicates that when central banks are independent of of, of politicians, you get much better monetary policy. And the problem here is that politicians think short term. Uh, we see this yeah. right now with President Trump. He, you know, we have the economy roaring along and inflation is, is potentially a serious problem. But he's a low interest rate guy and he wants to keep the economy strong because that gets him votes. And this is very typical. Uh, what has been very interesting in the last uh, 20 or so years is that, that basically uh, 
during the Clinton administration, there was a, basically a rule that the president would not criticize the Fed for raising rates. And that actually has served us very well and actually existed until this recent presidency. Uh, and uh, it's been violated. But on the other hand, it's not clear how big a deal this is. You know, Trump is Trump. He likes to he tweets about everything and says things that are pretty wild on a lot of different issues. And so I don't know how seriously to take his comments on low yeah. interest rates. Tell me about, and this goes to your service at the Federal Reserve Bank of New York ages ago. Tell me about the dollar dynamics in the Fed. I mean, at a given Fed meeting at the Eccles building or within the, the this color book or that color book, is there a lot of attention paid to dollar movements? Not really. Uh, the, there's several issues here. Uh, that the dollar movements, uh, first of all, the impact on the U.S. economy is not that large uh, because we're so, we're so big that we're, our trade sector is actually smaller relative to most countries. So from a point of view, how important it is to actually the forecast, it's not huge. Uh, that also very important is that the Federal Reserve should focus on domestic issues, should focus on uh, what's happening to inflation and also what's happening to the overall economy. And the dollar should feed into that in terms of actually mm -hmm. having an impact on, on what goes on in the U.S. economy. But that impact right. is not huge. So in that sense, the dollar really is not a big issue. The only time it could be really relevant is during a financial crisis where there's potential for financial disruption. Uh, but that's not the situation we're in right now. So I would uh, expect that there's very little yeah. discussion of the dollar right now inside, inside the, the, the Echo yeah. building when the FOMC meets. Let's back up to first principles. I love the cover of your second edition, Macroeconomics Policy and Practice. You've got the yachts of the elite on the cover. That's the that's that's it's got these gorgeous sailboats sailing off into the distance. Rick, well, you should know I'm I'm a very avid sailor, but my boat yeah. is a tiny little boat, only 22 feet. So not uh, well, one of the these, boats is the elite. And your your publisher, no doubt, said, "No, we need something more more fancy than uh, that, so that students could dream someday of the big yacht." <laughs> With that said, Rick Mishkin, a lot of people are looking at the inequalities of America and this mystery of wage growth. Rick Mishkin on wage growth. When does it happen? Okay, so I think that there's a, there's a huge problem for the U.S. in terms of income equality. Uh, and in fact, uh, this is also leading to some of our, our very unusual politics, which I don't think is health, healthy as it has been in the past. Uh, the problem here is that uh, if you don't get a good education, if you don't uh, get highly educated, then you're screwed. And, uh, and unfortunately, there are a lot of people in the U.S. who are not getting well enough educated, and they're not having wage increases. And mm -hmm. people who are highly educated, people like me, have done very well. That creates problems because many of the policies that then get put into place uh, are, are ones which very focused either very much on distribution, redistribution, or in ways that may not be the best way to do it. Or you actually have uh, uh, some of the kind of things that we've seen during, the, the, uh, the, during this most recent uh, presidential election. So this is actually not healthy. It's a problem that's very serious. Unfortunately, it's not that much the government can do about it in the short term, because this is about the fundamentals of education and fixing edu high education, which is a huge problem in the okay. country, is very hard to do. I'll take your point that the Federal Reserve Bank cannot solve this problem. They've got only so many tools and so much institutional force. But there's a primal scream, Rick Mishkin, whether it's in Australia or Hungary or in the United States, a populist revolt against the disparity of what GDP gains we're getting. 
what can be the policy prescription? And folks, I say this with Michigan's landmark textbook, which said, wait a minute, I'm actually going to talk about policy. Rick, what is the policy prescription to meet the people that support President Trump and their primal scream? So I think that a key issue here is how do we improve elementary high school education so that the people who basically may not afford to go to college or actually may uh, be people who can be very productive in the society but doing the trades, how can we make that a lot better? And this is a huge, huge issue uh, in the context of not just the U.S., but many other countries. Chile has worked very hard. It's been very successful as a Latin American yeah. country in terms of getting growth, but they've never fixed their education. Well, do we need to go back to a and- guild? Do, do, do we need to go back to a guild system or reinvigorate unions after uh, the I, atomization I, of labor? Yeah, I don't think it's so much the, the uh, uh, making unions stronger will be a solution, but I think giving people a leg up. What, what's always been wonderful about the United States has been that your view is, but if you work really hard, uh, you can actually do better than your parents. And uh, this has been something that has actually allowed us to have actually higher income inequality within generations, but across generations, uh, that, uh, that, there's, that there is equality. My grandfather was a peddler. He starved to death, basically. He never made a living. My father was an accountant. I was a successful businessman. And then I'm the third generation. Of course, I'm the scholar. So this is the American dream, and the American dream is not there anymore, uh, that we actually have less uh, upward mobility mobility across generations now in the U.S. than in Europe. That's a disastrous thing for this country. On the other hand, fixing it uh, in sort of uh, by quick fixes, that's not going to be the solution. Yeah. Uh, many of the, the issues of t- talking about trying to boost manufacturing, which the Trump administration has pushed and thinking that will help uh, these people is just not, not right, uh, that, uh, that it's not going to work. It's really something that we have to dig in deeper to say, how do we give people who want to work uh, the ability to make it. And we're not doing that in this country. And that's terrible. Within this, Rick, is is to bring it back to Chairman Powell, the speech that we're going to hear, an institution that a lot of people turn to. It used to be just about monetary policy. We've broken the rule on discussion of fiscal policy. We've broken the rule, you know, often on discussion of a dollar and, and such. Where's this Fed one, two or three Jackson holes from now? Well, I think that the problem is that many of these other issues are ones that the Fed can't control. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think the Fed, uh, can, uh, of course, will be making a clear-cut case for why independence of the Fed is so important. Uh, and I actually think that, that uh, uh, even though that uh, uh, Trump has, has criticized the Fed for, for raising interest rates, that this will actually not be a very serious challenge to the Fed. I think this is, again, just one of many Trump's comments, which are sometimes frequently very wild and and, uh, and people take them with yeah. a grain and salt, as they should. Uh, uh, the other issues in fiscal policy, we, we also have a fiscal policy we have now which is, is extremely peculiar. Again, very focused on the short term. Uh, you're an economy that's basically close to overheating, and then you put in a big fiscal stimulus. This is not the right timing for this. Uh, and, uh, and particularly, there's some of the fiscal stimulus, which is focused on, on tax cuts for very high-income people, really are not something that will produce long-term growth. But will the issue of the corporate tax cut, is something that could be can be justified in terms of promoting growth, but a lot of the tax decreases that we just saw, we're actually we're not focused on right. what really needs to be focused on, but instead on goose, just goosing up the economy, and that's not the right way to go. Uh, uh, Governor, Professor, thank you so much, Rick Mishkin of uh, Columbia uh, University. We greatly appreciate that this morning. An extensive conversation with uh, Professor uh, Mishkin.
Thanks for listening to the Bloomberg Surveillance Podcast. Subscribe and listen to interviews on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, or whichever podcast platform you prefer. I'm on Twitter at Tom Keen. Before the podcast, you can always catch us worldwide on Bloomberg Radio.